everybody, Mike here. Uh, welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad you're with us. I am flying solo today, which, um, you know, my goal is always to have somebody else on the phone or in the room to share conversation with. Uh, I know that me monologuing isn't the most exciting thing ever, but Seth Erie was not available and K2 is in Akron, Ohio, which let's be clear, is not uh, always the place you want to be in a cold December uh, day. Um, so so you're going to be stuck with me. Um, we've got a few questions to get through, but it, occur- it occurred to me that I need to say a couple of, of really big thank yous. Uh, first of all, it it dawned on me that that we're going into year four of the podcast. And I can remember exactly sitting at, a, at our house in Placentia, Ohio, talking to Andy on the phone and then in person about starting a podcast. Uh, and I, I, I never in my wildest dreams thought that uh, this would turn into something like it has. And so I, I'm incredibly grateful. I'm incredibly grateful to Andy, who was much more than a producer. I mean, Andy was a co-host and a dear friend and and somebody who had just really cool ways of looking at things. And, and he's just tough to replace. Um, so grateful for Vox Community. Uh, with with Christina and David and and uh, Andy and and Izzy to have started that community out of the podcast in the eighty I think it was eighty seven people who launched that community with us I mean that's unbelievable um, and thank you for to you of course for listening and for engaging and I'm I'm consistently uh, delighted by the responses the emails the 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 social media replies and whatever uh, tweets. And I'm, I'm very grateful for the in- level of engagement. And so just thank you. Thank you for those of you who have invested in the podcast. Uh, for those who are still investing in the podcast, I, I, I just would never have imagined this being a, a thing that I do. And um, and so thank you. I'm, I'm super glad to hear when, it's, when, when you find it helpful. And I'm super glad to hear uh, when you don't find it helpful. And uh, all of that is very much paid attention to. Um, I also want to give a shout out to the many people who made sure that I saw a story that it was it was about a 101-year-old World War II veteran who credits his longevity to drinking Coors Light every day at precisely four o'clock in the afternoon. I think that is fantastic. So thank you uh, for making sure I did not miss that story. Uh, that man is my new hero. So let's just put it that way. Now, I have some great, great questions today. And I'll try to keep it my, my replies relatively short. Um, you know how hard a time I have doing that, but we'll give, we'll give it a shot. Uh, this week, this is the first question. This week, as you discussed the gospel, so last episode, we talked about the big the Christian story from the perspective of sharing it um, in, a, in a shame-based culture um, versus a guilt-based culture. And, um, and so I gave some thoughts about that. And the question here is, you highlighted the importance of the life of Christ. There was one comment which you made, which I've heard from many others, that I find difficult to understand. So I'm so glad you are asking the, the question is, and, the, and she's quoting, the Messiah came rather as somebody who was willing to absorb the worst the world had. There wasn't a bit of human life, the ugliness of human life that Jesus of Nazareth did not come to understand and experience himself. Uh, in the midst, uh, she continues, of my deconstruction, I experienced several bitter failures which carried ramifications 
for my vocational life. I was persistent. I was pursuing God first. I was prepared. But repeatedly, um, yeah, I never succeeded. A few years later, I partly understand the way that God used my failure to shape me and my story. I see the redemption and surprisingly grateful for the heartache. Now, with that said, how has Jesus experienced failure? And I'm assuming you mean the kind of failure that you experienced, the kind of failure that I gave it all I had and it wasn't enough uh, kind of failure. Um, Can God himself fail? And the only way I can rationalize any portion of the Trinity failing is that God experiences rejection. Do you think that's the same thing? Thanks for any help you can offer. Okay, so first, what a great question. And I've never, in all my years of doing this, have never been asked a question like that. So, so this is way above my pay grade. And, and I would certainly think that uh, if you come from a Reformed Calvinistic background, you're going to answer this question one way. Or if you come from a non-reformed, non-Calvinistic background, you're going to answer this question potentially a different way. So with that caveat, um, a, a couple of things immediately pop into my head. Uh, first is, did, did you experience failure? And superficially, of course you did, right? You, you say it was embarrassing, it was disappointing, it was painful, the death of a dream. I mean, whatever it was that went into that, of, of course, on one very obvious, uh, one very obvious sense, you experienced failure. And I, and I can relate. I, I view myself as somebody who is, is pretty much failed as being a pastor uh, in, in a lot of different contexts. And so I, I can relate to the embarrassment of that, the you know vocational disappointment. I mean, all of those sorts of things. Um, but on the other hand, you you have this comment towards the end, the, where you say that I a few years later I partly understand the way God used my failure to shape me in my story. I see the redemption and surprisingly grateful for that heartache. Now, so so in the short term, clearly failure, agony, pain. But, but in the grand tapestry of the life that God is weaving together in you, was that failure? And, um, and in, uh, obviously, yes, but maybe in a deeper sense, maybe failure isn't the right word to use to describe what happened there. Um, if, if you can look back a few years later and see threads of redemption and, and even be grateful for some of it, then I'm not sure failure is the right word to describe that whole experience as you look at the big, big epic picture of your life. Um, so, so that would be one comment. Uh, another comment would be, the scripture is very, very clear uh, about God's power. God can do anything. That God, um, no, no plan of God can be thwarted. Now, that is absolutely as clear as the Bible gets. When God says, let there be light, there is no hesitation. There is no pushback. There is no uh, other suggestion. God simply is raw omnipotence. He can he can pull off anything God wants to do. So so on the one hand, no, God can't fail uh, when it comes to power. When it comes to relational, and you even hinted this that God can experience rejection. I see that as a type of failure because what God. The kind of universe, and this is where my, my Calvinistic friends and Reformed friends will start you know, twitching, but the kind of universe that I see God creating in the Bible is one that allows 
for the real significant agency of human persons and angelic spirits in, in some crazy way that I don't understand, such that God has given us, through our image-bearing and our culture-making enterprise, the ability to say no to him. So when you have Jesus walking on the earth, and here's a rich man who walks away sad because of Jesus's uh, teaching about riches, I have to imagine, and I, and I do believe one of the gospel accounts, it does say that Jesus loved this man. I have to say that, that that maybe failure isn't the best word. Maybe your word rejection is the best word. But certainly, imagine if you've created, I mean, imagine if you have a child that um, that you you know have poured your life into and, uh, and that child uh, rejects you. Uh, what kind of pain is that? So does God experience that kind of pain? I would argue absolutely. Absolutely, that God is grieved according to the uh, apostle Paul. The spirit can be quenched in 1 Thessalonians. I I do think we have, uh, because of the way God made the world, this isn't the way it had to be, but because of what God values and the kind of creatures he wanted uh, to create, God has made it so that he can experience rejection. And that, um, at least in relational terms, uh, I think describes the kind of pain that God experiences uh, in, in a way that I, I think we can't even we can't even fathom. So is that failure? Well, if God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, and there are some that reject Him, again, failure isn't the right word, but it's it's something in that ballpark. So so I do think God knows the pain that 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 you have gone through for a dream that you sacrificed for and deeply wanted. And and then for whatever reason that doesn't work out, uh, I do see strands in the gospels of God, you know, intending to work, Jesus intending to work miracles, but there was no faith in his hometown. Uh, There were were these, uh, you know, the disciples being so slow, the betrayal of Judas, the rejection, at least of of some of his family had to sting. So I I think the way God created the world allows for a kind of failure that has nothing to do with his ability, but has everything to do with what he intends for free creatures to experience and enjoy in human life. Great question. Question number two. This is actually going to be two and three. Um, We've alluded on the podcast before about how morality, sense of right and wrong, is not exclusive to or originated from religion and or Christianity. The perspective of some, you know, uh, at least some, maybe if not all atheists, right? That you can be moral without God. Regardless, the question to me still stands. He's asked this question before especially after Tim Mackey referenced Western culture benefiting from the morality of religion, how it's so woven in our cultural fabric that we are often blind to it. In some, if not religious, where is the origin of morality? I just don't know. So, so you, can, you can have an origin of morality and not be aware of it. My personal opinion, and, and I, I'm sure my uh, philosophy friends, my, ethic, my ethicist friends would have better answers for this, but the way I understand morality is that it is, it is part of what it is to be an image bearer, and um, and and so the you know to be to have some sense of freedom, to be rational, 
to be relational, to be moral. These are capacities located in the Imago Dei, the image of God that we carry. And so that, that those are true of every human person. So even the most hardened atheist, when they're protesting against um, you know, environmental waste or um, you know, reckless government spending or whatever it is, they are, they are imaging God. We're, we, were, we were intended to, to be creatures who do right, who do good. Now, you throw this wrench of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in, and, and the objection to, to what I just said was, well, they were human before they, eat of the, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then now, whatever, whatever happened, their eyes were open and they were able to decree good and evil or understand good and evil, perceive good and evil. That's a whole separate question. Um, how is it then that, um, that you know, were they moral before? they had awareness of good and evil? And my answer is yes, because they were given the choice to trust or to not trust. They were given the choice to obey or to not obey. That morality is is located in freedom in in some very important and distinct way. And so that ultimately, when, when people are moral, now certainly what religion slash Christianity has done and, and, and other world religions too. I mean, they've all asked, they've all tried to answer the same fundamental questions about existence, although they define existence differently and, and so on. It has, has, to me, the, the fact that there are so many different religious systems from cult-like ones to the major world religions uh, that we see is just another indication of the moral sensibilities that are embedded in uh, what it means to be human. So for me, I locate it there. And, and where did humans get it? Uh, they got it from the, the fact that they image uh, God. And so all the ultimate origin morality is God. But the reason I can say you know, to an atheist or somebody, yeah, of course you can be moral uh, without believing in God is that you are stamped with God's image, even if you don't believe that that is true. So I hope that gives a little more uh, clarity. Second question uh, this gentleman asks, um, heads up Bible geeks and heads up sensitive millennials like myself, after the original sin, God gives these strange curses to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man in that order. Specifically, Genesis 3.16, this curse is given to the woman. What is meant by, and he quotes, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Or as the ESV puts it, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I have no idea what that means. At face value, it sounds like God is the author of patriarchy or uh, that it is a product of our decision to live apart from God. So for one, what does the passage mean? And two, with the tenor of the Me Too uh, movement, various waves of feminism, etc., the majority of which are great things, how much of what we have been experiencing in our culture over the last century has been a product of this passage? Pardon the book, love your thoughts, go Beavers, the real OSU. Now, obviously this person um, is deluded uh, the Oregon State Beavers, no one thinks when they hear OSU, the Oregon State Beavers. First of all, we we beat them in opening day, so we, of course, hold the claim. Uh, Oklahoma State, of course, is another OSU. Uh, so I think we should, I, I, per, personally, 
I think we should have a three-way playoff uh, to determine who gets the the exclusive use of the abbreviation OSU because my friend here is clearly mistaken. Now, the second question though is really really good, and and um, this one takes some explaining. So, the the story in Genesis one, of course, is that God um, creates everything that is. And uh, we focus in on this temple garden in Genesis 2, where uh, human persons are built, not built, but created in a, in a way where they image God. They're given a mandate to cultivate the earth and to fill it, subdue it. And there is this sense at the end of Genesis 2, the, the man and the woman have been created. They're naked and have no shame. And there's a sense of, of what the Hebrews called shalom. Uh, which is the which is the right and proper fitting of everything in their in their order. It's it's the way something works um, as it's intended to work. So it's peace, but it's wholeness as well. That shalom is ruined though by a talking snake who tempts uh, the woman and then the man into disobedience by eating a fruit from a specific tree. And again, metaphor, literal. I mean, we can get into those debates all day. However. The story that we've received is that our our parents, our first parents, wandered into sin. And as a result of what they did, they they received judgments from God. Now, this is super, super important. The way I read Genesis 1 and 2, there were several commissions given to the man and to the woman to fulfill that were essential, that were an essential part of their image bearing and their vocation in the earth. One, of course, was to rule over the creatures of the sea and the birds of the air and the things that have that have uh, crawled along the ground. And rule there doesn't mean, you know, dictatorship. I mean, the rule means to, to do what God has done because God has displayed goodness and benevolence and, and, um, and intelligence in the rulership and creation of all things. The humans were to exercise those same attributes. And so, so that the earth would be called forth out of just mere potential, but into abundance and, and the creatures of the earth would be blessed and the humans of the earth would be blessed. And all of this would be done to the glory of the creator God. And so they were given the vocation to rule. Uh, they were given the vocation to fill the earth. The rabbis, of, as we've said before, make a big deal of the fact that the first command given in the Bible is to have sex. Um, fill the earth means reproduce. They were to do that. And, and that they were to do that as co-equals. And they were to do that as, and, and in my view, and I think I can make a very, 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 very strong case that there is no hint of patriarchy in Genesis 1 and 2. I know some of my complementarian brothers and sisters will disagree, but I, 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 do, I don't think I'm right on many things, but I think I'm right on this one. That the, They were to, to relate to each other as co-equals. Um, she was to be something called an Ezer Konegdo, a suitable helper, which in English just does not even do justice to how strong those Hebrew concepts are. Um, but but uh, they were to relate as equals. Now, what's interesting is that once the man and the woman disobey and then sin and death enter the world, God levels these judgments at them uh, at precisely the places that where he created them to find meaning, purpose, and significance. So, for instance, uh, the woman um, was categorized woman 
uh, in Hebrew, she was she was made from the man, and so the man uh, names her after the man. It's Ish and Isha, I think, is how how you say the words. But there's a word play there. The the man Adam was created from the ground, which was the the Hebrew word Adama. And, and so there's a word play between the man and the ground and the woman and the man. And so there's some sense in which part of the man's vocation was to work the ground, partnership with the woman. The woman was created from the man would find some of her significance and value in that relationship. And I don't, you know, don't apply this in stereotypical uh, ways. This can look, you know, a zillion different ways. But what's fascinating is that the, the judgments that God levels to them have to do with how they're named. So, so you take the man, the man is cursed last, but what's cursed isn't the man, but the ground. The man was named after the ground and was called to work the ground, but now the curse is that he will experience painful toil from the ground. And instead of working cooperatively with him, it, it will now produce uh, uh, thorns and thistles. And the woman first of all, was to be the vessel through whom the earth was filled, correct? Uh, As the one who bore children, this was how the earth would be filled. But notice, God, the first curse God gives is he curses childbirth, that it will now, with with pain now, you will give birth to children. And then he curses her namesake, her relationship to her namesake, the Isha and the Isha, the man and the woman. Now, instead of shalom, instead of uh, interdependence, instead of a beautiful intimacy, now what you have is a power struggle because when it says your desire, and I quote the NIV here, the desire, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The word desire there means desire to master. And the word rule here means kingly rule. The man will try to rule over his wife and the wife will try to master the husband. And so instead of this beautifully interdependent picture of unity and oneness, the two will become one flesh. Now we have a power struggle. Now the question then is, well, why would God um, level the curses, quote unquote, uh, that way? Why would he make it so the woman could not find fulfillment in her uh, in her relationships and in her childbearing, and the man could not find fulfillment in his relationships and his working of the soil? Why? Why would God do that? And the answer very simply is he does it as an act of great mercy. If it was that we could find meaning and fulfillment in human life apart from God, we certainly would. We try to all the time, right? If riches were enough to satisfy, we'd stop at riches, right? If pleasure were enough to satisfy, we'd stop at pleasure. But as it is, all of these things suffer from the law of diminishing returns. So, so what does God do with a now rebellious creation who, full of their own freedom and autonomy, think that they can make life work better without God? Well, God uses our own self-interest against us. I mean, nobody comes to Jesus and is like, you know, I just believe in you because you're the Alpha and the Omega. No, I mean, you're you're hurt and you want healed. You're you're uh, aware of your guilt and you want forgiven. I mean, whatever it is, you're you're enslaved. You want freedom, right? He uses he he exposes our hunger and our thirst by making it so that we cannot find a deep, satisfying life apart from him. Now, of course, our atheist friends will say, no, no, I have deep and satisfying life. And and my my point is, my point is uh, not that we don't experience moments of deep and satisfying life, 
but the, ultimately they're just moments and they, they keep us and remind us that we were meant for more of those. We were meant for more than what we experience, right? That's why we love superhero movies. That's why we love, uh, you know, Star Wars. I mean, we we are we are trying to re-enchant the world because we know deep down fundamentally that this isn't the way it should be. And so, to me, and it was my Old Testament prof who who brought this first up, and I was like, this is staggering if it's true. The curses were God's way of uh, exposing our thirst and driving us back to him by using our own self-interest against us. And, um, and so I- I'm sure there's lots, lots to disagree with there, but, um, you know, a couple of thoughts maybe to <laughs> have you chew on. All right. Last question. We're 25 minutes. I'm doing, I'm doing okay. All right. So this, uh, I was wondering, that's a great question. If you had advice for people who are considering leaving their church and finding another, when is that okay to do? When is it not okay to do? No church is perfectly healthy. So how much unhealth should a person accept before leaving? What a great question. Is it possible to leave a community without becoming just another consumer-minded church shopper? That is a Phenomenal question. And uh, the answer, short answer is yes. I think there, there are good reasons to leave a church. And I think there are bad reasons to leave a church. And, um, and so I've learned some of these the, the very hard way where, where, we, where I've created churches where people left because I was doing just silly things um, and, uh, and not paying attention and those sorts of things. And I've, I've also you know, been on the receiving end of people leaving a church for very superficial reasons. And so just a few thoughts. There's no, you know, I don't know that there's one correct answer. I think it, it ultimately is what's going on in your heart. A church, remember, is a people who share a specific identity and a purpose. And so how many churches are there in Columbus, Ohio? Well, there's just one, but there are many expressions. Uh, There's just one in Orange County, California, but many expressions. And so in in one sense, you you never leave a church, right? You are part of the people and the purpose uh, that God has called forth from human history to endeavor to accomplish, right? I mean, you you can't change that, but you certainly can change expressions. And um, and so the fact that we even have a term like church shopping, you know, just shows uh, how how far we've come um, away from, uh, I, I assume, what Jesus was thinking when he gave birth to this whole thing. But if I if I were sitting with you and we were talking, I would I would I would have to say off the top of my head, there there do seem like there are good reasons to leave one expression of of church and and to find another one. One would be uh, mission drift. Uh, if you've heard that phrase before, it, it's very easy to lose sight of the very simple directive that Jesus gave to make disciples of all the nations and baptizing and teaching people to obey everything that he commanded us to do. It's super easy to lose sight of that. And you can lose sight of it so many different ways, right? You can lose sight of it in self-promotion. I mean, there's a church uh, I'm aware of that just continually boasts about how it's one of the fastest growing churches in the country. And you're like, Man, the, the, the great announcement of the church isn't how great the freaking church is, right? The great announcement of the church is the, is the presence of the risen Jesus, uh, not only in its midst, 
but available to anyone who calls upon his name. I mean, that's the great announcement of the church. So you can you can grow, you, you can get lost in self-promotion. You can get lost in simply trying to grow the church. Hey, church means that uh, we want to grow our small groups. We want to grow our justice ministries. We want to grow our attendance. And all of that is fine if it serves the greater mission. But for many churches, at least in my experience, those are just, they, they become things in and of themselves. And, um, and so we don't measure or we can't tell if people are actually becoming more loving or becoming more gracious or if they're just stuff full of, uh, of Bible knowledge. So, so, so does the church you attend encourage, strengthen, and challenge you to live the identity and fulfill the purpose for the reason the church exists? If, if it does not, if it's not there to equip you, if it's not there to, um, to see that you are growing in the faith as much as you know other people can help with that, then I, I would be suspicious if you think the church, and again, don't ever listen to the stated purpose because the stated purposes all sound alike. We're gonna do this and this and this for the glory of God. Listen to what was actually said and done. What's valued? What's, what's, uh, what are the stories that are celebrated? Who, who is cheered on? What's that person look like? Is it the person that spends all their time at the building? Is it the person that's never there because they're too busy serving their neighbor? I mean, all of those sorts of things. So if you sense a church is drifting in any significant way from the mission uh, that, it was, that, that it was created for, then, then I would, I would uh, try to find a new expression that was more faithful to that. Of course, there are doctrinal reasons why, why people would leave churches. And uh, I think some of the, we did early on in the podcast, I don't know, in our, uh, I don't know, in our first year, we talked about the difference between being boundary focused and being center focused in the way that you talk about doctrine and the way that you talk about what you believe. Um, There are churches that are boundary focused that are going to have strong opinions on a whole bunch of things to separate themselves from every other iteration or expression. There are churches that are center focused that simply, you know, focus on a few things. Those are the hills you die on and everything else. You know, there's room uh, in the large umbrella of the church for people to disagree over all kinds of things. So, so I'm a center focused church kind of guy. And um, if I were at a church that were boundary focused and, you know, said things like, hey, you have to believe in a six day literal creation or you're not believing the Bible. Um, you, you cannot believe that God used evolution. Um, you know, if you're, if you're, you're making, you know, gospel, you're, you're making secondary issues, primary issues. You're making secondary issues like gospel level issues. Uh, I'd have a problem with that. I'd have a problem with the church that didn't give me permission to ask big questions and to wrestle with mystery. And so I would, I would wrestle with that. Um, I would certainly, if a church decided to no longer um, worship Jesus or consider the Bible to be unique in some way, uh, or uh, to to you know stop announcing the good news of what Jesus has done, uh, all of those to me would be reasons for leaving. So I, I do think there are doctrinal reasons, of course. If somebody said, "Hey, you know, the way you're saved is by being baptized in our church," I'd get the heck out of there. So. So there are some doctrinal things, but they're not just the what's of what you believe, but it's the how's of how they want you to hold those beliefs. Are they generous to people who disagree? Or are we continually reinforcing the small boundaries 
uh, between, well, you know, we're we're not like those people. I mean, I've heard this stuff in churches. It's absolutely crazy. And then lastly, I think uh, the last legitimate reason, and not the only, these aren't the only three, my goodness, but these are examples, is um, an unhealthy leadership culture where conflict is not handled well. Now, conflict is inevitable. It will be there always. And pastors, elders, leaders are never perfect. So there will be mistakes. There will be errors in judgment. There will be corrections that will be needed. Absolutely all of that is true. So you can't, and as one who has helped lead and then um, you know a couple of different churches, man, I can speak to all the screw-ups I mean, that, I, that I've had over the years. And so grateful for the men and women who were willing to walk alongside me in the midst of those things. The bigger questions are, how is that conflict resolved? How is, are, is there transparency in decision-making? Um, is there transparency in, uh, in finances? Are, are conflicts resolved or are they swept under the rug? Is, do we protect the reputation of the church at the expense of telling the truth uh, about certain things? Uh, um, does, the, does the leader seem to actually love and enjoy serving the people? Or does this seem to be just a, a platform for branding the leader's personal brand? I mean, it, all of those are super huge questions. But to me, how is conflict resolved is, is absolutely massive. Is it, and it doesn't mean it's always going to be perfect. It doesn't mean it's always going to resolve so that everyone's happy. It does mean, though, that we do our best to own all of our stuff, um, to, to walk humbly with each other, be patient and gracious with one another, and, uh, and we don't have permission to give up on the other. Bad reasons to leave a church, and, and I, I sense from your email uh, the, these aren't ones you're being you're thinking about, but just to say it, um, one bad reason to, uh, to leave a church is that you're not being fed. And when people say they're not being fed, usually what they mean is uh, the Bible teaching isn't good enough, the speaker isn't dynamic enough, the theology isn't deep enough. And, and to which I respond, in the, the these days, you you should never leave a church for bad teaching. You should lead a church for erroneous teaching. If the teacher just isn't a great communicator, but is a godly person, then who cares? You can turn on Tim Keller or Francis Chan or whoever else, right? You have N.T. Wright. You have access to the best teaching in the world. Why in the world would you ever leave a community if you weren't being fed? That's on you. That's on you. I always would tell our people, listen, my job isn't to feed you. My job is to make you hungry. Right, my job is to, is to equip you so that you become the kind of person who um, is able to open up a Bible, read it, and understand the basics. Uh, be formed around it, put it into practice, uh, and then supplement all of that with some of the best teaching that's out that's ever been out there. And if you're like, yeah, but the worship is boring. Okay, well, buy Hillsong's next album. I mean, there there's no reason to leave. If the community is flourishing, if it's central on mission, if it's if it's um, led in by very healthy people, but they just aren't dynamic speakers, oh my goodness! Please stay, please stay. You know, we need you. We need we need. Like I said, mediocre churches will save the world. And um, so to leave because a church is not as flashy as another church down the street, I just think I think makes zero sense. Um, 
you know, if it's not exciting, I'm sorry. <laughs> it, I don't know that it's supposed to be. Um, you don't like it. Okay, well, the, the issue is never whether or not you like it. The issue is, does Jesus like it? And it's clear from Revelation, if you take that book, as him speaking to uh, churches, that just because a church has gathered, uh, people have gathered, that he's real pleased with what's happening. So for me, to evaluate a church service like you would evaluate a movie is, you know, is completely missing what the church is to be and what it's for. Uh, but there are good reasons to leave. And so I don't know if that's if that's helpful to you or not. It's the best I got off the top of my head. Anyway, brothers and sisters, I will uh, talk too long. Um, anyway, bless you. have got a great interview coming up this week for next week's show. And then we'll probably take a couple of weeks off for around Christmas. Um, or maybe Seth Erie will sing Jingle Bells. I don't know. We'll try to get him, see what happens. So uh, anyway, my, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Until next time, friends. Thank you. Thank you.